The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. into uh, World War II, and you are joined by other quickly trained boys who are beginning to grow into men right before your very eyes. You are an American soldier. You are uh, fighting in the northeast corner of France, right at the border of France and Germany. Your objective is to hold back the counterattacking Germans. You have made a push into Germany a few days prior, but you're now being pushed back by the German forces. Your commander says that the ground that you are standing upon will be where you meet the enemy. You must hold the line. You are exhausted. You're beginning to run low on supplies. But at the same time, you know the urgency of your mission. On January 26th, You see a massive German force of infantry and of tanks beginning to emerge from the woods opposite of you. Fear washes over you as you see the large, overwhelming push from the German army. You feel as if you have rocks against their superior artillery. At about this time, your lone TD, your lone tank destroyer, is hit, and it's set ablaze. It was a tremendous weapon that that gave you a glimmer of hope, at least against these advancing tanks and against these advancing forces, and it's now gone. You have no choice here but to abandon it. And about this time, your commander, First Lieutenant Audie Murphy, commands everyone to retreat back to the woods behind you. You gladly take this command, and you begin to disperse into the woods behind you as you retreat. As you look back, though, you see First Lieutenant Murphy stop retreating, and he climbs into the burning M10 tank, the tank destroyer, and he mounts the 50 caliber machine gun, situated on top of this burning heap of rubble now. He begins to open fire on the visible German troops. Between his volleys of fire, as he is reloading, he's on his radio. And as best he can, he's calling in airstrikes on the positions directly around him. You see this. You and your fellow troops are retreating back to the woods, assuming he won't make a big stand and the enemy will quickly be upon you. You're gracious, however, for the extra minute, five minutes, ten minutes, that your first lieutenant has given you. There's no way that he can hold the line. You sit, anxious for what will happen in the next few minutes. You hear the blasts of artillery in the battlefield in front of you. You continue to hear the sounds of the 50 caliber machine gun. Surely, First Lieutenant Murphy is not alive. You peek out from the cover of the woods, only to find that he is still alive. He's continuing to call. He's continuing to fire. 
he's decided to focus his attack not on the approaching tanks, but on the approaching infantrymen that are accompanying these tanks. After exhausting all of the ammunition he had, both in um, his duty weapon as well as the machine gun he is mounted on, he ends up causing the German soldiers to retreat back because of a lack of infantry support for their tanks. Murphy then hops out of this turret to find himself very injured. He regroups with his men, and together he pushed the German troops back to their original positions. The results of your commander has absolutely saved your life. You most likely wouldn't have survived the day if it were not for his actions. He stepped in when all seemed lost. And he decided to put his life on the line to save others. You don't understand this. You don't understand why anyone would choose to do this. But you're grateful. You're grateful to still be alive. This is the true story of soldier Audie Murphy. He became one of the uh, most decorated army soldiers of World War II. He ends up receiving every uh, military combat reward for valor, and he even ends up receiving not only awards from the uh, American side of things, but he ends up receiving awards from both the French and the Belgium armies as well. Today, here in San Antonio, there is a building erected in his name. It is the uh, Audie Murphy VA Medical Center down in the medical center. He was a man who stood in the gap. He was willing to place his life on the line for others. He was willing to do whatever was necessary for the men, his brothers, to his left and to his right. Many soldiers can credit their lives to the heroic acts of Audie Murphy. He didn't have to do what he did, but he chose to. He made the choice to put his own life on the line in order to save others. What's interesting is First Lieutenant Audie Murphy didn't end up taking the command until that night before all of this. He didn't even know most of the men that he was serving with. Most of the men that he commanded to retreat, while he stayed behind, he couldn't recall their names. He, however, was willing to give up his own life to save others. This morning, we have the joy of finishing up our time in the book of Philemon. Philemon, again, is towards the back of your Bible, right before the book of Hebrews, after um, Timothy's and Titus. Uh, my hope is that God has already used this book in our past two weeks to speak to your heart, and my hope continues that he will do the same this morning and even beyond. In case you weren't with us the past two weeks, let me just catch you up where we're at. Uh, so far, we've gone through the first 16 verses of this short letter. Paul has introduced us to himself, as well as he's introduced us to the person of Philemon. We've seen throughout uh, that Paul has a relationship with Philemon, and Paul is utilizing this relationship, this friendship that he has, to ask of Philemon a question. He's asking Philemon to accept back a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. This is the short version of the first 16 verses. Today, we'll finish out the letter, and we'll look at verses 17 through 25. So as I said, Paul has just made a, a very difficult ask. He's asked Philemon to accept back the runaway slave. Place yourselves in the shoes of Philemon for a minute. How would you respond to this ask? 
Take it to a modern day context. You have a worker that has decided to run away from you. Not only has this worker run away, but he also has stolen money from you so that he can run away. I remember working my very first uh, few jobs as a young high school student. Uh, my very first real job was at Cracker Barrel. I was a server. I had four stars, okay? I was somebody, <laughs> all right? It was great. I, I enjoyed the job. The ultimate no-no, though, of those first career jobs was what's called a no-call, no-show. A no-call, no-show. I won't ask for a show of hands here who has done a no-call, no-show before, but apparently this is like the worst thing that you can do as a young employee. It's where you were scheduled for a shift, but you, one, don't show up, and two, you don't notify anybody. You no-call, you didn't call anybody, and you didn't show up either. Imagine that scenario, but the no-call, no-show um, has also stolen some money from the register to get out of work so they can take just an afternoon stroll on the Riverwalk. How would you feel in, in that scenario? How would you feel as Philemon? Because it's a similar story to what has happened to him. Paul, again, within this, within this text, he's going to utilize his relationship to talk with Philemon. There's a strong brotherly bond in this text between both Philemon and Paul, as well as what we saw last week, Onesimus and Paul. Have you noticed how key relationships are within this text? From the very beginning, Paul has established his relationship, and he continues to speak throughout this letter out of a context of relationship. In fact, I think within my study of this letter and my time working through it, it's caused me to see the book of Philemon in a different light. Previously, if you asked me what the book of Philemon was about, I would say the book of Philemon is, is centered around a letter which was about the forgiveness of a slave and a master, which it is. However, the entire letter is based upon the premise of relationship. This is a key tenet of this letter. Not only is it a key tenet of this letter, but I believe is a key tenet of the Bible as a whole, and therefore is a key tenet of our faith. Take a minute and just step back from the letter for, for a few seconds here and just go to that 30,000 foot level and just look at what we see. This is a letter which has been um, centered around relationship. It's not only difficult, but I would argue impossible to live the Christian life devoid of relationship. We were designed and created by a God who is in himself in relationship. The Father, Son, and Spirit are three, yet they are one. We see plural nouns used in the creation story all the way back in the beginning with Genesis. We see John in the New Testament, chapter 1, mimicking the same plural nouns of creation. The theological idea is known as the Trinity. Most of you have probably heard of this, this term before. It is, it's key for Christianity. It is a distinctive for Christianity. That's why I want to invite you to something that we're going to do in September. We're going to do what's called a seminar. Um, it's going to be before church for a few weeks, so we're going to look at the exact topic that I'm talking about of the Trinity. We have some budding teachers that will be leading us through this doctrine of relationship. 
We feel this doctrine is of so much importance that it's worthy for you to show up to church a little bit early. It shouldn't be a surprise that we are relational beings. We were created by a relational God in his image. So what does that mean then for you to be in relationship right now? The church is such a key place for relationships to be established. Our gathering right now is a time for encouragement, of edification, for us to be building one another up. It's also a time for us to be sent out. Do you actually know anyone here? Not just can you say their name, can you wave hello, but do you actually know them? I had the joy of meeting with a a budding leader this week that was burdened with the lack of relationship that she observed. There are a lot of highs and a lot of hellos that occur here, which is great. But who actually knows you here? Who knows your successes? And who knows your failures? Who knows your kids' names? Who knows what the inside of your house looks like? Many people choose to attend church, which is fantastic. But God calls us not only to attend church, he calls us to be the church. And that must happen within the context of relationship. It is so vital for us to know others and to be known. Looking back at this text that we've been working through, Paul is making this plea to Philemon based on relationship. I had another meeting this week with a brother that asked me to meet with him, and he was concerned regarding something that he had heard from some other friends, and there was a disagreement with these discussions. He came to me and said this, some of my greatest times of growth have been in times of rebuke. I think I'm correct here, but if I'm not, please let me know. Do you know the only way those types of conversations can get to that point is with that foundation of relationship? Most people are unwilling to be corrected or to gently correct others if there isn't that relationship that is established. I implore you, don't walk away this morning without establishing relationship if you have not. Whenever I say relationship, I mean more than just getting to know somebody's name and shaking their hand. When your child has a birthday, who are you going to invite over? When you hit marriage struggles and are discussing separation or divorce or some other alternative, who will you call? When you're debating a large career change, who will you want to ask their opinion? When life happens, who will you invite to join you? Romans 12, 15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Who around you will you invite to rejoice with you and to weep with you? Both circumstances will occur within your lifetime and the lives of the people sitting to your left and to your right right now. God has specifically designed the church as a a breeding ground of relationships. Some of these relationships will even go so well any single folks in here that you can put a ring on it at times. My wife and I are a product of relationships being established in the church, and to quote the great historian Queen Beyonce, I liked it and I put a ring on it. (laughs) I encourage you this morning to not neglect relationships. It's really easy to talk about relationships and finding them here in the church, but for some of you, you might have no idea where to begin or what that even looks like. I would love to help you. There are some gray cards which are situated around you. Um, some in the back as well as you walk out. Feel free to fill out one of those. Just drop it. There's a little wooden box in your way out there. 
Uh, just mark on there that you would like to join a community group, or you can just write the word connection. Um, I would love to follow up with you. I would love to connect you. For any and all of the introverts in the room, you don't even have to fill out a card. You can just go to the website, stoneoakbible.com connect, and anyone online, you can do the same thing. You can fill out that form, and I will love to follow up with you. My desire is that nobody walks alone. All right, let me hop off my soapbox and, and get back into the text here. Paul begins with a plea asking Philemon to receive Onesimus as if he were Paul. 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He asks this out of, get this, relationship. He said I would get off my soapbox, but it keeps appearing in the text. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Paul places himself in the shoes of Onesimus, and he asks Philemon to accept Paul back. Here's the CSV version, the Craig Standard Version. Philemon, I know you might have some animosity towards what Onesimus has done to you. I know this guy, though, and he has changed. You and I are brothers, so do this for me. When he shows up, treat him as you would treat me. Give him a chance to show you he has changed and is of great use to you now. Paul here isn't just saying these words, but he's actually putting his money where his mouth is. If you look at verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul here offers to take on any debt that Onesimus has found in himself. Paul gives us a biblical IOU here in verse 19. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul has signed his promissory note with his own name here within the text. I am good for it, and I will take on the debt of my brother's actions. Paul here is standing in the gap for Onesimus. Paul isn't required to do this at all. He could make Onesimus pay his own debt. He could send Onesimus back to Philemon and have him work off any debt that he has accrued. Paul even has the option here to take Onesimus and to sell Onesimus to the highest bidder and to send the funds back to Philemon. Paul, however, wants to position the relationship as best he can for success. And so what he does, he puts himself right in the middle of it. He knows that Onesimus is worth more than any amount of finances to Philemon. Oftentimes, it seems we're unwilling to step into the yuck of other people's lives. It typically is not fun. We have our nice clothes, and we usually don't want to get them dirty. It's much easier to just pat somebody on the back and say, it will be okay, than to sit with them. It reminds me, honestly, of the book of Job. Uh, we preached through the book of Job a number of years back. It's still on our website. If you look at the, the analytics of our website, it is still one of the most popular sermon series we have ever preached through. I think there's a number of reasons for that, but I think one of the biggest ones is because it's, it's a, a book about struggle and strife. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, on our website online. The book of Job um, can often be a book of how not to be a friend to people going through struggles. Uh, Job has three friends throughout the book that are continually offering him some poor advice. However, I think the best piece of counseling that I maybe have ever seen is also found in this exact same book. The book of Job, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Let me read them. 
So it says this. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends, they step into the yuck of Job's life. They join him in his despair. They, they tear their own clothes and they mourn with Job. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights and they don't say a single word. As I've grown as a pastor and as a shepherd, uh, this is oftentimes what I find people need most from me. As a husband, this is oftentimes what my wife needs most from me. I am a fixer, and I want to oftentimes offer solutions first, instead of being a comfort. My wife has a very difficult job. She works on a pediatric transport team uh, here in San Antonio. She gets the opportunity to care for some extremely sick children. There are those cases where we celebrate and we get to walk alongside the families and eventually see them leave the hospital. There are times years down the road where we get to celebrate birthdays with kids who, have, who should have never made it out of the room, and yet they're still here. There are other cases, though, where the outcome is not the same. My wife and I have spent many minutes and hours in a simple embrace as she walks through the door with her scrubs still on, saying nothing when the outcome is very difficult to understand. I have to meet my wife where she is and to step in, even honestly when I don't desire to. Would you like to see my selfishness and my sin on full display? I often would rather keep watching the sporting event that's happening than embrace my wife. However, there are those times where... God shows me my own sinful, wretched heart. And I'm able to care more for others than for myself. Paul steps into the mess of this relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And he offers his very self. As well as he offers his possessions to help bring these two brothers back to fellowship. Do you need this today? Is there some place within your life, within your own mess, that you desire for someone to step in with you? So maybe somebody around you that you are needing to step into their mess and to offer yourself. Why would we do this? Let's look at what Paul says in verse 20. He says this, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. There's a benefit to seeing restoration. It refreshes our hearts in Christ. To see two parties come together in Christ. How great is it when we see two sides coming together after a period of disagreement? It brings everyone joy when the marriage 
that seemed like it would never be restored back together is living in harmony and in unity once again. It, it places on full display the work and the majesty of God. This text gives us a, a glimpse into two parties that are in disagreement. However, this text also shows us ourselves in such a humbling way. Let me say this. I, I believe that this letter is, is real. I believe it is historically real. I believe this letter shows a very true story of a very true man named Philemon and a very true man that was a runaway slave named Onesimus and a very true mediator named Paul. However, I believe the application of this text this morning is for you and for I. You and I, we're runaways. You see, in the very beginning of time, God created man and woman. He created them in his image, as we said earlier. Man and woman were with God, and he was with them. Everything was beautiful, and as it should be. And God allowed these two beings to rule and to reign. He left them with one simple command to not eat of a specific tree in this beautiful garden. They were free to eat of any other tree they so desired except that one. Man and woman end up going against God's command and chose to eat of that tree instead of listening to God. This was sin, and it caused them to be kicked out of this beautiful garden. And therefore, out of the presence of the God who had created them, God and man were now separated by sin. The story continues throughout the history of man, and it even continues to you and to me. When you were born, you were born into this line of Adam, the first man, and the line of sin. You were born separated from a holy and perfect and just God. You also have continued to choose your own desires over God's and have continued to choose sin. Everyone in this room today and everyone hearing my voice is a runaway. We have run away from a good and a holy God. And we have chosen instead ourselves. We have done what we saw was right within our own eyes. My story of my own selfishness a few minutes ago is the story of us all. Unlike Onesimus, though, there's no way for us to run back to our master even if we chose to, even if we wanted to. We can run all day, but we will never reach him. There's no way that we can behave good enough or work hard enough to reach our master. We are in need of someone to step into our muck. Praise be to God who has made a way. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to step in to our pit of despair where we are. He steps into the gap. He looks at our master and says, charge it to my account. We are in a heap of debt. The debt has a name for us that's greater, though, than any number. Our debt is death. This is what must be paid. It's greater than any monetary value. It requires a body to be broken and blood to be spilled. Who would be willing to take on that debt? 
our Savior, Jesus Christ, has done just that. He's given his own life to pay for our debt. He has stepped down from heaven, and he has joined us in our despair. He's given his own life in place of ours. We who were once destined for death have now been given a new life, his new life. Everyone in here, I want you to know that Christ has paid your debt. Just this morning, we sang these very words. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Praise God. This story of Onesimus and of Philemon, it's the story of us. Jesus Christ has spoken the same words as Paul to his heavenly father. God, any wrong that they have done, anything that they owe you, everything from yesterday, from today, and from tomorrow, and all the days to come, Charge it to my account. Place their burdens upon my back. Allow their debt to become mine. Give to them my freedom. Let my payment restore them to you. This morning, I hope you hear the truth of the gospel revealed in this story of a runaway bondservant. I implore you today, stop running. Allow the one who has stood in the gap to take your debt upon his shoulders. It has been repaid. Praise God. Paul continues here in verses 21 and 22, knowing that Philemon will do this. The text says this, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say at the same time. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul knows that Philemon will do this because of the character of Philemon. He knows that Philemon has been forgiven of his sins and will therefore offer forgiveness to his runaway slave Onesimus as well. He knows this because Paul has offered himself and the place of Onesimus as a brother. Paul also lets Philemon know that he plans to return to him. Notice here the power of prayer that both Paul and Philemon believe in. Paul here is in prison. We've discussed that every week. Yet Philemon and the church that is meeting in Philemon's house are praying for his release. Paul here is confident in their prayers reaching God and God therefore allowing Paul to visit Philemon again. We are unsure if this ends up happening or not. We don't really know whether Paul ever gets to see Philemon, whether Philemon ever gets to see Paul. In fact, we don't know what occurs beyond this letter. It's disappointing that we don't get the resolve. We aren't given any updates regarding Philemon and Onesimus and whether the relationship was restored, whether Paul had to pay some sort of financial debt. Were they ever restored to each other? The scripture here is silent regarding what does happen with this relationship. However, we do have some clues within history. A few years later, um, in in the historical books, we see that there's a new pastor. And this new pastor takes on the church that is in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Timothy, one of the former books that is a couple pages to the left here, Um, was pastoring this church in Ephesus at the time. Timothy steps down, and a new pastor steps in. 
That new pastor's name is Onesimus. Scripture is silent regarding what happened to Onesimus, but I personally like to think that Philemon and Onesimus were restored to each other. And Philemon ends up sending out Onesimus as a brother in Christ to lead the church in Ephesus. Paul ends this letter, verses 23 through 24, with, with a group of names, oftentimes as the uh, kind of beginning of each of Paul's letters. He, he groups names together that are with him, and he usually ends the letters in the same way of a group of names, and oftentimes we overlook these names. Paul here, though, lifts, lists this group of individuals that he has traveled with and that he has interacted with. Paul begins in verse 23 with Epaphras. He says, my fellow prisoner in Christ. That's literal, that Epaphras is with Paul in prison at the writing of this letter. He goes on, sends reading to you. And so do Mark. This Mark is John Mark, who, if you, you recall, has a history with Paul. John Mark and Paul had a, as the text says, no small disagreement. Uh, John Mark ends up abandoning Paul uh, during a missionary journey. And it causes a large disagreement between Paul and Barnabas at that time. However, we can see here, and also if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, that Paul and John Mark have restored that relationship. In a letter about relationships, about forgiveness and restoration, Paul here places the name of an individual that he has had to walk through this exact same thing with. There was a disagreement. There was animosity between these two brothers. There was a feeling of abandonment and of a mission lost. Yet, we see that restoration between Paul and John Mark ends up occurring. He continues on, so do Aristarchus, and he also includes Luke. These are two fellow workers that were with Paul. They'd both been with Paul throughout his missionary journeys and were partners and friends of Paul. Paul here shows four individuals that were partners with him in the gospel. If you've been following along in the text, though, you notice that there is one individual that I have skipped over. That's the individual of Demas. It's a tough name to appear in this text because of what we see later in Paul's later writing to Timothy. Demas here is mentioned with the names of some New Testament authors, some writers, some pastors, missionaries, and fellow believers in Christ. However, let this name be a warning to us all. At this time, within this writing of Philemon, Paul here considers Demas a friend and a partner. If we, however, read Paul's letter to Timothy... If you just turn to the left of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul in Philemon is looking at Demas and he considers him a brother. Yet we see in a later writing... Demas has loved the world more than he has loved anything else. There's no mention of Demas from this point forward, either biblically or historically. 
he's overall lost to us. There's a big difference between those that Paul mentions here alongside of Demas. For the others, we can find history books containing their, their works after this point. In fact, even the runaway slave Onesimus, he's mentioned later in history, but not Demas. Demas is a warning to all of us. He's gone on missionary journeys with Paul. He's walked alongside of him. He's traveled in the same footsteps. He's heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul and others many times. He's rubbing shoulders with some of the greats, yet we see that his heart is still black. The gospel has never been rooted in him. In this room, and around our city, and around our nation, and even our world, there are many that are rubbing shoulders with some who have been saved, but others who have never been saved themselves. They're still holding to their debt with pride. This morning, I pray that you would evaluate your own heart. I pray that you would examine if your debt has been paid. I would love to continue this conversation with you today. Please don't leave this morning if you are unsure if your debt has been paid. I'd love to end our time in the book of Philemon and our time this morning with the same words that Paul chooses to end this book. Will you stand with me together as we read the last line of Philemon, verse 25. It says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.